John chapter 19, as we continue our study through the gospel according to John, I'm going to read the text, we'll do a short recap, and then we'll jump right into where we left off. The Bible says in John chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers platted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe, and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they smote him with their hands. Pilate therefore went forth again and saith unto them, Behold, I bring him forth to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate saith unto them, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. And from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth, and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover in about the sixth hour, and he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? Then the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. May the Spirit of God give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. Remember from last week, Pilate is trying to find a way to release Jesus while pleasing the crowd. He's found no fault in Jesus, but he wants the crowd to calm down and he's figuring if they beat Jesus, then it'll appease the crowd and he'll still be able to release Jesus having found no fault in him. But you're not going to please everyone. And a man in a position like this ought to be following the rule of law. They ought to be following what is clearly laid out. And boy, does that sound familiar today. Jesus was scourged in verse 1. And we saw last week how violent of a process this is. Uh, was It was very bloody. It was designed to tear flesh from the body. Uh, sometimes organs would be exposed. Some have said at times even entrails would fall out that it was such a violent process. Uh, and so by the time somebody got done being scourged, it was hard to recognize who it was that had been scourged. And the goal was to bring people up to death, but not let them die. It was known as pre-death. It was known as uh, pre-death death. Half death. Let's get this person as close as we can to death. We don't want them to die. We just want them to suffer. And also the thinking was, if we can bring them up to a certain point, then put them on the cross. They're not going to be on the cross as long because they've suffered so much because of the scourging. I'm just saying, this is, 
This is a life that Jesus endured just in the scourging. Okay? This isn't just going to the woodshed. This is a major deal and a lot of people would die from it. Verses 2 and 3, we saw how Jesus was mocked. Jesus was, um, had a crown of thorns pressed into His head. He had on a purple robe. They gave Him a scepter in His hand, or as a, a reed as a scepter. And then they, they would get down on one knee and they would look at Jesus and say, Hey, O King of the Jews! They would hit Him with the reed. They would slap Him with their hands. The Bible says over in another Gospel account that they spit on Him. They had absolutely no respect for this innocent man. Verses 4 and 5, Pilate stands before the people. He tells him again, I find no fault in Jesus. He brings Jesus forth, who's still wearing the crown of thorns and the robe, and he says, Behold the man. And Pilate was hoping to satisfy the crowd, but they were not going to settle for anything less than crucifixion. And we know, having the ability to look back now, that God was working His way of salvation through all of this. Jesus must go to the cross. And so in verse 6, the people cried out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And Pilate says, You take Him and crucify Him. I find no fault in Him. But the religious Jews say in verse 7, We have a law, and by our law, He ought to die because He made Himself the Son of God. They knew Pilate was just saying that, that they didn't have the authority to crucify Jesus. And they remind Pilate, According to our law, He needs to die, so you need to take responsibility from this. And so when Pilate heard that Jesus had been equated to the, the status of the Son of God, he's now more concerned. The Bible says he's more afraid. He was already afraid. Now he's the more afraid. And so in verse 9, he enters into the judgment hall and he asks Jesus, Whence art thou? Where are you from? Well, we see that Jesus gave him no answer. Remember last week we talked about this kind of curious because over in Mark 14, when they asked, the council asked Jesus, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. When Pilate asked Jesus about his kingdom, Jesus said, My kingdom's not of this world. When he asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? But now Pilate asked this question, Where are you from? Meaning, Are you from above or from the earth? Jesus doesn't answer a word. We know it was a fulfillment of prophecy, but there's more that meets the eye that's taking place there by Jesus not saying anything. If Jesus says He's from above, then Pilate was likely not to sentence Him to death. You'll remember that the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.8, speaking of Jesus being the Christ, which none of the princes of this world knew. That word princes are those in authority. When none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And so Jesus, He keeps His mouth shut. He doesn't answer Him a word, understanding that what Pilate might hear would be interpreted according to Pilate's pagan theology. And Pilate's going to say, well, we don't want to crucify Him, but again, God's plan is going to be worked out. And God uh, had already foreordained it from the foundation of the world that Jesus would be the Lamb that would be slain. And so Jesus doesn't say anything here. And, of course, things continue to go on. And what's interesting is Jesus... Here is He's giving Himself to the Father's will. But look at what He's suffering. Isn't it interesting what God's will can lead us into? And so many think that the will of God for their life is to never suffer. That's not true. That's not true. The Bible says all that will live godly shall suffer persecution. So Jesus here understands, I've I've got to go through these sufferings. It's the will of God. 
Jesus did it all for sinners. The mocking, the scourging, crucifixion. He did it so He might be friends with you. That you might be reconciled to God. That you might know Him. And through Him have life. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Well, that brings us to where we left off last week in verse 10. Then Pilate saith unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? Pilate here, I think, is being very prideful. He's likely very frustrated as well. Remember that the Jews come to him at the very early in the morning, maybe even still overnight hours somewhat. Wake him up, get him to start judging this. They don't really bring a charge against him. He's finding them innocent. He's still having to deal with it. He's got this angry mob. He's probably frustrated. He, he's got pride about his position. Why won't you answer me? Don't you know that I have power to release you and I have power to crucify you? Who do you think you're talking to here? I don't know what his mindset was, but Jesus, he doesn't say anything. And, and, and so we have this man, he's being puffed up with pride. I don't know if you've ever heard the saying, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. Which, of course, is absolutely true for mankind. Pilate here is definitely corrupted by his power. He has become arrogant as a result. Pilate sees himself as the sole possessor of Jesus' fate. But is he? No. God's in control. Say, well, I don't know what's going to happen in 2021. Listen, God's in control. God's in control. I don't, know what the, I don't know what this year holds, and you don't either. But I know this, that whatever happens to us, it's in God's timing. He's got this. Well, I don't think I have to convince you that we have politicians and judges today which are corrupted by their power. Of course, the problem is, in our form of government, our elected officials are supposed to be representatives of the people, not officials over the people. Somewhere along the line, that's been corrupted. Abraham Lincoln famously said in his Gettysburg Address that we are a republic that is by the people, or of the people, by the people, and for the people. I read that that actually originated, I don't know if this is true, but that it actually that saying actually originated with John Wycliffe back in 1384, and he was one of the champions of having the Bible translated into English. And I know he got through the New Testament. I can't remember if he translated all of it or not. But in the prologue, he wrote that the Bible is for the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Well, that's interesting to me that those are connected. That it's a kind of a biblical connection there to what Abraham Lincoln was quoting. And I got to thinking, what's our problem today? How is it that years ago we were being founded upon such principles as these, and now it seems like it's all eroding so fast? Well, John Adams, our nation's second president, said, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Isn't it amazing what our forefathers kind of saw coming? 
Our problem today is we no longer have the Bible in our government, which has now caused us to no longer be a moral and religious people. And sad to say, the Bible has been taken out of churches. Churches in quotes. Therefore, our founding documents are no longer being handled in the same manner in which they once were. Our government's been corrupted. Our courts have become corrupted. We have judges all across this land that think they can overturn the will of the people, and they do. We have judges now that are simply ruling according to party lines, not according to the rule of law. What do we see Pilate doing? He's ruling according to party lines. Oh, you're going to say, I'm not a friend of Caesar. He's not ruling according to law who has already found this man innocent. All our officials take an oath swearing to God that they will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. But as we can tell now, they're just empty words. We see time and time again how judges and politicians trample over the very documents that secured our freedoms. There was corruption 2,000 years ago. There's corruption today is what I'm telling you. I want you to understand nothing's changed. Humanity's still depraved. We still need Christ. You say, well, I can't change. I need something bigger than me. I know. You know what you need? You need Christ to move in. When He takes up residence, there's a change that begins to take place. So listen, there was corruption then. There's, there's corruption now, but I find this such a timely verse to land on here in verse 11. Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. How great that we've landed on this after our transition of power in our nation. Jesus rebukes Pilate's pride by letting him know that any power he may have upon this earth, it's only because it had been bestowed upon him from above. You see, God brought forth His Son in the fullness of time. What does that mean? Well, when God said it was time, when God decided it was right, God brought forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. And God decided when the political climate was going to be just right, that Jesus would show up on the scene knowing that Pilate would be governor in Judea. Did you know you serve that kind of God? That knows the end from the beginning? He knows who's in power. (laughs) He knew Biden was going to be elected. You say, well, he wasn't really elected. He knew Biden was going to be the president. So don't split hairs with me right now, amen. Come to me afterwards and I'll join in on you. But anyway, God knows. It was God who allowed the Assyrians to come in and take over the house of Israel. It was God who allowed the Babylonians to come in and take over the house of Judah about five or six hundred years before our text. Both houses were defeated because of their sinfulness. It was God who allowed the Greeks to come in. After that, it was God who allowed the Romans to come in. Because of their sinfulness. They're remaining under Gentile dominance because they have turned their back on God. Jesus lets Pilate know that it is God who allowed him to be governor over Judea in order that Pilate's the one that's going to preside over this trial and God knew it all the way back from the beginning. Pilate may have thought his authority was from Rome. 
but it's God who gives authority. We see here the Pilate, though he's a wicked man, God's using him to work out his plans. Brother Ken and I had, had talked after Trump got elected. There, there was some doubt there. Is he going to be for, the, for conservatism? Is he going to be for Christians? And I remember Ken mentioned, you know, God used Cyrus to help God's people. And so we don't know. God may use a wicked man to help us. He may use a wicked man to hurt us. Maybe I should say chastise. But God's in control. And, and here's Pilate. Even though he's a wicked man, God's using him to fulfill God's will upon this earth. So you may look at all that's going around and go, I don't like it and I don't think it's good and all those things. Wait a minute. What's God doing behind the scenes? His will is being worked out. I don't like all that's taking place. I don't like that we no longer have a balance of power as we were designed to have. How is it that in the first week, a president can sign, what, over 30 executive orders? Sign your name and the law is changed? How is that the will of the people? It makes no sense. But listen, I've got to tell you this morning, folks, whether we like it or not, that authority comes from above. So I don't like it. I don't, I don't reckon Israel liked it when they were taken captivity by the Assyrians. And so whether we like it or not, we have to recognize that the power that we are seeing exercised, it is because God has allowed it. And you can rest assured that the dismantling of America that we're witnessing today is a direct result of our sinfulness and departing from the God who made us a nation. But we can also trust in this, that all those in power are in power as a result of God still being on the throne. It's God who is sovereign. And it's in times like these where our faith is tested in the political realm. While we may see wicked rulers in place as a result of our own sinfulness, we as God's children can rest assured God is working out His plans. And I tell you that because we don't have to overthink it. You don't have to sit in front of the news channel. You could actually take a break from the news and read your Bible or pray. I don't know who I'm talking to this morning, amen, but stick that in there. I don't have to overthink it. Now, I want to be informed, and I consider myself to be well-informed. But I don't have to sit there and, and get all down in the doldrums and think that, well, Christians are done for, and we're going to have to go underground. So what? So what? God's in control. So trust in your heavenly Father's ability to govern the powers that be. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the river of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Don't lose faith because the America we once knew is disappearing. It hurts to watch. And it breaks my heart to think of my children growing up in a vastly different America, and I can only imagine how our elders in here feel looking at their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And that is heartbreaking. And I can tell you, I'll still fight for our liberties as long as God gives clarity to do so. 
But I want you to trust that whatever happens, God is in control. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight says, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and He is the governor among the nations. Psalm 47, 7 and 8 says, For God is the king of all the earth. Sing ye praises with understanding. God reigneth over the heathen. God sitteth upon the throne of His holiness. It is God who is in control. Therefore, we as God's children ought to go to the one who's in control. We ought to be going before God's throne. You say, what is it God's children can do in a time like this? I don't hold a political office and I don't... Listen, we can pray. We can ask God to bring a revival to this nation. A great awakening. A sweeping nationwide revival that will turn the hearts of men to the heart of God. Are you praying for our nation? And we must pray, not my will, but thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And we have to admit that it is our sinfulness that has led to the position we find ourselves in. That's why our nation has lost her way. Just this week I read an article where a so-called ordained Baptist minister named Katie Zay applauded President Biden for funding Planned Parenthood. This isn't the world I'm talking about. This is the quote-unquote church. I said at first service, I might as well say at this service, amen. Might as well make the whole church mad at me. But first of all, any woman who can't read the Word of God and figure out that she's not to be an ordained minister doesn't have a handle on the Word of God. Any woman I just offended, come and see me. It's Bible, it's not my opinion. Not to mention the church she was once affiliated with and supposedly once pastored is now pastored by a lesbian pastor. She stated this, quote, As people of faith who support reproductive freedom... We believe that everyone has the capacity to make sacred decisions about their bodies, lives, families, and futures. Notice how that's all grouped together there. Anyway, any attempt to control, restrict, or interfere with that decision is reproductive oppression. And so she's actually calling abortion a sacred decision. This woman, she's quoted as saying, I felt the call to ministry when I was working in in an abortion clinic where abortions were being performed. When asked which Bible figure she most related to, she stated, Martha Bethany is the one I identify with most. Martha was working in the kitchen when Jesus was teaching Mary. I think Martha was doing ministry work when she brought her complaint to Jesus. What I love about her is she advocates herself and is not afraid to challenge Jesus about what he does or doesn't do. I would hate to be in her shoes on judgment day. That's that's the mess that the church house is in today. No wonder our nation is messed up. And to me, that's the worst of sins. How can somebody call themselves a faith leader and forsake the Word of God? You say, well, are you trying to tell me that some sins are greater than others? Well, look at the end of verse 11. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. That just blew about 90% of the Christian's theology. Not my opinion, it's what Jesus said. People like to debate, is this sin worse than that sin? 
Well, it is true that one sin will send you to hell. If you die without Christ, it only takes one sin to have God's wrath executed upon your life. It is true that all sin is sin. But would you not agree, civilly speaking, in civil matters, we find here, there's a difference. Who are you going to be more mad at? The person that comes up and punches you in the face or shoots you in the face? Well, you're probably not going to be mad at that point. (laughs) So when it comes to civil matters, I think we can say there's varying degrees of sin, but both parties here, the Jewish council and the Gentile governor, they're abusing their powers. But Jesus is placing the greater blame upon those who delivered him to Pilate. Therefore, Jesus says they have the greater sin. But understand, neither were being excused of their sinfulness. That's not the case here. They were both guilty. But Jesus is clear that one sin was greater than the other. And we see this evidenced by verse 12. And from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Can you see the difference? Here's one. He's guilty. He's abused his power. But he's saying, I'm trying to release this man. The other group's guilty. And they say, oh, no, you don't. Acts 3.13, Peter is preaching to his own countrymen. And it says, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up, and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. So who has the greater sin? Pilate, he yet again seeks to release Jesus, which he could have done through his power as governor. But these religious Jews, they sided with Caesar over Jesus. Let me put it this way. Because they, they, okay, maybe they didn't understand all this. They sided with Caesar over God. This exemplifies what I was just sharing with you. How churches today are now siding with the Caesars of our day. They're siding with government over God and His Word. Everybody okay this morning? I can't help but see these similarities. I mean, (laughs) we who stand with Jesus are the ones being called the enemies of the state. Last week, a church in California, a Baptist church, I think of our stripe, I'm not 100% sure, was bombed in America. You know the reason why? By the way, you ever wonder why you're not seeing it on the news? But you want to know the reason why? It was because they stood for marriage between one man and one woman, and it was called hate speech. If thou stand with Jesus, then you are not Caesar's friend. And you can almost hear the cry today. If you stand with Jesus, then you are not the government's friend. At least on these policies. If you stand with Jesus on the sanctity of life, then you are now worse than those who are performing the abortion. If you stand with Jesus on the sanctity of marriage, then you are now worse than those who are perverting God's Word. If you stand with God who in the beginning made them male and female, if you dare to stand against the biological confusion that's being taught in our schools today, then you are worse than scientific fact. I guarantee you even a child can stand in a delivery room and go, yep. Yeah, that's right. 
And I love how science is only cited when it benefits certain causes. We're having fun this morning, amen. You wonder why I need a break every now and then. Nobody's saying amen. Nobody's saying second preacher. That's good. Just kidding. <laughs> Nobody can see your face. They don't know that you agree or disagree. And, and listen, here's the deal. As I look at this account of Jesus being on trial, what, what I kind of got from this is Jesus is being put on trial today. 2,000 years later. He was put on trial then over whether or not he was a deity. The council didn't like the fact that he was the son of God. Pilate doesn't like the fact maybe that he's a king. Jesus is on trial today. It's God's word which is being questioned as factual. It is God who's being placed on trial as to whether or not him and his ways are holy. Believe it or not, I really don't like spending a lot of time on these things. But I feel like I have to prepare God's people for what may lie ahead. We kind of have this Americanized view of Christianity. We are the exception in the world. Do you understand that? There's people being beheaded for their faith out there. We've had it so good, we don't understand all of it. And I just want us to be prepared to know where we stand. Because these young people, they're going to be challenged in ways that you and I weren't. Well, verse 14 says, we'll move on. I'll skip over verse 13. I'll just say, say there, when Pilate sits down there, he's going to pass a judgment. So crucifixion is going to happen at this point. It says in verse 14, And it was the preparation of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. So we find here, it's the preparation of the Passover at a time when the religious Jews of the day should have been purging out the old leaven. They are steeped in their sinfulness against Jesus and they're missing the fact that Christ was their Passover lamb. And I believe we could spend a lot of time right there kind of dissecting that. I don't want to. I'll leave that for you to study. But Pilate, upon hearing that he wouldn't be Caesar's friend if he releases Jesus, chooses political correctness as his means of going forward. And in verse 14, he presents Jesus again to the crowd, but this time he says, Behold, your king. And I believe he's trying to tell the crowd here, does this look like a man who's leading an insurrection? He's a bloody mess. He's got flesh ripped from his body. You can't even recognize him as Jesus. Does Does this look like a king to you? If this was a king, where's his followers? Where's his army? Behold your king. Look at him. Verse 15 says, But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So Pilate was still hopeful of releasing Jesus, was hopeful that when the crowd saw Jesus look defeated, they would cease from demanding his death. But they cry out, crucify him. Pilate then asked the question, shall I crucify your king? It's hard to know how Pilate meant that statement. Could be at this time that he's saying this in a different attitude. I don't know. Maybe he said it seriously. Maybe he said it jeeringly. 
Maybe he knows he can generate a response from the crowd, still show them, look, I'm still Caesar's pal. I don't know how necessarily he meant it, but the chief priests give the response, we have no king but Caesar. And I was trying to imagine how Jesus must have felt at that moment. Being paraded out like that, having a crown of thorns mashed into your head. We're not talking briars, we're talking two, three inch long thorns. Having a purple robe on you, bloody, probably barely able to stand, as we'll see as he tries to carry part of the cross up. And here's their king. And the crowd says, we have no king but Caesar. Don't you think that broke his heart? The angel Gabriel had told Daniel, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. He then listed six things. The number one thing was to finish the transgression. I believe the transgression is the rejection of God being king. And we could really get into the weeds here. But remember in the days of Samuel the prophet, Israel came to Samuel and they wanted a king. Because they wanted to be like the other nations, remember? Samuel's heard over that, but God tells Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, 7, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. And in God's mercy, Jesus came to this earth. He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. Jesus would say in a parable about Himself in Israel in Luke 19, 14, but His citizens hated Him and sent a message after Him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And here we find they say, we have no king but Caesar. Give us a king so we can be like all the other nations. You got it. Be careful what you ask for. In fact, we learned in Matthew's account shortly before Barabbas is released that the crowd cries out to Pilate, let this man's blood be upon us and our children. And once again, they got what they asked for. Behold your king. We have no king but Caesar. The rejection of God as their king is being finished. Now, I think it would be a great study if you would look at the word behold in your Bible. What does God say we should behold? What do we find man beholding? What does God behold? But as I close this morning, how are you beholding Christ today? When you behold the man, how are you beholding him? Is everybody with me? Behold the man, who do you see? Is he just another man? Or do you behold a man who was without sin and is without sin? Is he God in the flesh standing there rejected and bloody on your behalf so that you might receive God's forgiveness and enter into a relationship with God and have your sins forgiven? Who is your king?
I were to ask you this morning, behold your king, what would you see? Some people see the political powers of our day. And they want their king to bring them goodies. I'll just leave it there. Is Caesar your king or Jesus? And listen, this is what I know. I was, I was there myself, and I still fight it. But if I said, behold your king, a lot of people see themselves. Because you want to be king in your life. You want to call the shots. You want everything your way. Behold your king. Who is it? Is king yourself? Or have you learned to submit to Jesus and His will? And I want to tell you, if you're going to rightly see Jesus as the man and as the king, you have to go back to John chapter 1 when John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. And until you see Christ as the Lamb who takes away the sin of this world, you're never going to see Him right when you behold the man and when you behold your King. You have to go back and see Him as the Lamb that is standing here bloody. Say, well, that Christianity is a bloody religion. Yes, it is. How are you beholding the Lamb? How are you beholding the man? How are you beholding your King? If you behold Him as the precious Lamb of God, then you will see Him as the sinless God-man who stood in your place in the likeness of sinful man. And then you will see Him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And what we need today more than anything, and I'm talking about even in the church house, is for people to just sell out for God. Say, God is my King. Behold your King. Let's pray.